Good morning, everybody. Welcome to church. Yeah, and uh, well done to Samantha because I asked her to do this like right before church started, and she had you know all kinds of you know names like Idumia and all of these sorts of things that she had. So so fair play to her for even saying yes. Um, you know I probably should have asked her a bit more in advance to do that. So thank you, Samantha, for reading for us. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I have so enjoyed going through the Gospel of Mark slowly but surely, little bit by little bit, because. I think there is nothing more compelling than Jesus. As I read about Jesus, as I, as I study about Jesus, what I find is more and more, I'm like, wow, this guy is incredible. You know? And, and I hope that it's the same for you as we walk through this gospel. Maybe as you're reading uh, the gospels on your own, as you read about Jesus, you just think, wow. Like, if I could just know this guy, <laughs> if I could know this man, if I, could, if I could experience him. And even there, maybe you feel a bit like me where you go, if I could just be like him. <laughs> right? We talked a couple of series ago about this idea that, that Jesus came and he said he came to bring life and life to the full. And I think as you read the Gospels, as we, as we read these stories about who Jesus was, about who Jesus is, about what he, he did, you can't help but think the way Jesus lived his life, that is life to the full. The way that Jesus brings life into, into situations where, you know, people have basically been robbed of their normal life. Jesus gives life into that. All of the things that, the, the ways that sin has destroyed our good world. Jesus is like, he's undoing that. He's setting things right. And I, and I just, I don't know. I don't know about you guys, but I just find Jesus so unbelievably compelling. And so, so yeah, if this has been fun. Like, I'm, I'm, in, I'm really enjoying walking through this with you. And we've come to this story um, that Samantha so kindly read for us in, in Mark chapter 3. And if we remember where we've been so far, what we have seen is that Jesus has kind of been in this kind of, he was, right, pretty obscure, right? I mean, all of a sudden he comes out of nowhere, John baptizes him, he's calling, he calls, you know, a couple of people to follow him, and all of a sudden it's like the steamrolling effect like starts to happen. Jesus starts healing people, helping people, you know, like preaching the good news that the kingdom of God is, is at hand, and next thing you know, Jesus has gone from like, somebody nobody even knew who he was, you know, like to being like an, an absolute celebrity. So much so that as we read, Jesus is literally like, guys, we got to get a boat ready because we're just going to get suffocated by the crowds if we don't get in a boat, right? Like that's where we're at in the ministry of, of Jesus. He is at this point of like complete celebrity. And I, I was trying to think like, do we have like any sort of like, I don't know, in my mind, I was trying to get a mental picture of what it must have been like for, for Jesus, right? And I've never really been in, in like a mob like that. The closest thing that I can come is like, for me, if you know me at all, like, you know, I've become a big fan of rugby. Um, you know, so that's like, it's something like, and I remember back in 2016 when Connacht won the Pro 12 semifinal. I didn't get to go to the final, so I didn't get to experience that, but the, but the Pro 12 semifinal. And, and you know, like for me too, like many of you, that I volunteer with Connacht. So like, usually I'm, I'm pretty close to the, you know, pretty close to the ground and everything like that. Well, when Connacht won the Pro 12 semifinal, the entire stadium just made their way onto the pitch. 
And like all of a sudden you're like standing, you're like there's a mob. Everybody's trying to touch the players to get around them, to congratulate them. They're cheering, they're singing. It's the closest thing for many people that they'll probably ever come to a church service, right? Everybody's amped, everybody's excited, everybody's singing and cheering and having a good time. You know, and in a way we could probably digress down that path of like sports as a church, as a new religion, but we're not going to <laughs> because I don't want to do that to you guys today. Um, there, I'll start my timer. Um, but, but at the same time, I think if we kind of get that in our heads, like, like to me, yeah, the closest thing is like people trying to get around like a celebrity, like crowding in. Everybody wants to be next to him. Everybody wants to be by him. Like that's the picture that we have. We have this large crowd surrounding Jesus. Like I said, so much so that he's like, oh boy, we better get a boat. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know if people couldn't swim or what, you know, like, uh, yeah, like, uh, but you know, you get out far enough, maybe people will kind of just cool it and like say, yeah, I don't want to get wet today. I don't know. Um, but anyway, he's like, he's going to get in a boat. All right. So this morning, what I want to talk about really, and we're just going to get into it. Um, what I want to talk about is this, we, is just, we're going to walk through the passage. So let's start with verse seven. Jesus went out to the lake with his disciples, and a large crowd followed him. They came from all over Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, from east of the Jordan, and even from as far north as Tyre and Sidon. The news about his miracles had spread far and wide, and vast numbers of people came to see him. All right, so we have this large crowd that has come to see Jesus. And, and here's just kind of interesting note. You, most of us, we read, like, we start getting into town names, and all of a sudden, you know, the eyes glaze over. We, it's, it's completely meaningless to us. You know, we're like, I don't even know what, you know, Idumea, where's that? You know, um, you know, I can't say it, let alone, you know, know where it is on, on a map. Here's what you need to know. What Mark is saying is everywhere in Palestine where there were Jews, people were coming from there. Right? So if you look on a, on, on a map, Idumea is like in the, like maybe you have a map in the back of your Bible. I don't know. You could look there. But like you'll find Idumea is like in the very south. Right? Tyre and Sidon are areas that had a large population of Jewish people, but they weren't actually part of the Jewish Palestine. They were their own thing. But like Jesus spent some time there. We'll get there, we'll get there later. But right, people are coming from, that's like in the north, right? It's, it's uh, in what would be modern day Lebanon now. So like people are coming, you know, from, you know, from way down in the south, from way up in the north. You have east of the Jordan River, people are coming. You've got Jerusalem, you've got Judea. Like, and, and so you have literally people from all over the Jewish world that are coming to meet Jesus. And we can start to think like, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. They're coming to meet Jesus, right? They, they, must, they must really be interested in the kingdom of God. But if we look at the text, we find that they're interested in Jesus, but for a specific reason. If he, he or sorry, Jesus went out to the lake for the large crowd, right? Okay, sorry. The news about his miracles had spread far and wide, and vast numbers of people came to see him. They're interested in his miracles. Now, maybe for you, you're, you know, you, you've been in a similar position. Maybe that's how, how you met Jesus. It started out with just like, I'm interested in this guy, like maybe, you know, maybe he can do something for me. The problem is, I would say the issue with that is, that's great. That's wonderful. I, I'm glad that like something has brought you to the feet of Jesus. But what we see is that there is a difference between just coming to see Jesus for a specific reason, you know, like a, a need, and being a disciple, right? There's, there's a clear differentiation here because he talks about his disciples and it talks about the crowd, and so I think there is a difference 
between being a disciple of Jesus and maybe even just thinking like, you know what, this Jesus guy is pretty cool. Right? This crowd of people thought Jesus was pretty cool because they thought, hey, I can get something from him. He's got something I need. Right? And, and you know what? Honestly, I think for, for most of us, it probably our journey to following Jesus started out something like that. Right? It probably started out something like that. But the problem is, is, it, is it can't stay there. Right? At some point, the people in the crowd need to make a decision. Am I going to be a disciple of Jesus? So this crowd is not following Jesus as disciples. They've come flocking to him from all sides because he was able to heal them. They're more interested in satisfying their physical needs than they really are, it seems like, than becoming true followers. Now again, I said I think that's under I do think that's understandable, right? If you think about the world in which they lived, the medical standards were not what they are now. <laughs> you know, so for most people, even with something that we would consider a simple ailment now, could be a life-shattering, you know, disease. Uh, something that you know, many of us may live with now because of medications or things like that. Uh, you know, it just wouldn't have been possible back then. You know, the medical standards there were extremely primitive. So if somebody can heal you, you're going to come find them, right? You're going to come looking for them. But again, like I said, there's a difference between just coming to Jesus, looking to get something from him, and coming to Jesus in order to get Jesus. Right? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, really, is this idea of, of transitioning from a place where we just come to hear about Jesus or maybe to get something from Jesus to coming to a place where we become a disciple of Jesus. So it begs the question, maybe for many of us, what is a disciple? And that can be a difficult question to answer for many people. Like we, it's a word that gets used in church because, because it gets used in the Bible, right? But oftentimes we don't actually put any concrete, like sort of, what is a disciple? Right? Somebody who follows Jesus? Okay, well, let's, let's put some legs on that. Here's my, my definition of what a disciple is. I think at its most basic level, a disciple is an apprentice. Right? It's a word used for like an apprenticeship. It's, doing, it's uh, learning to do what a master craftsman does. That at its core is what a disciple is. It's learning to do what a master craftsman does. It's becoming an apprentice. So it's saying like, you know, I think I, think I talked about this before because I used this ridiculous idea of like being a blacksmith, which none of us, you know, like, I don't know, that doesn't really resonate with me. I don't know why I used it before, <laughs> you know. But like, yeah, you think about like any job, any like trade, right? If you want to learn a trade, what's the best way to do it? Get with somebody who's really good at that trade who can teach you how to do it. And then it's not like you just like, you know, do it your own way. No, you learn to do it the way that that master craftsman does it. So here again, I said I was going to give you my definition of, of disciple. Discipleship is not simply a task or an identity marker, right? It's a whole life of knowing and becoming like the master. And this is something I think is really important because I think sometimes in church, we've equated discipleship to just knowing a lot of things about Jesus, Right? Knowing the right answer, you know, that the kids, you know, discipleship for the kids is knowing the right answer when the teacher asks upstairs. You know, <laughs> or, or it's like, it's, it's just having this kind of right ideas about things. Or, or, or maybe it means like just doing the right things, right? Being a disciple just means I, I, I'm a good person, I do the right things. Or, or maybe even for you, like being a disciple, I, and I think this is like, in our culture, this is a big thing, right? Being a disciple just kind of becomes 
an optional, an accessory that I add to my life, like a nice handbag or something like that, that says something about me, but it's not fully me, right? I'm a disciple, but like, you know, in this place or that place, you know, I, I, I bring it out when it's appropriate, you know, like it's, it's you know, uh, when I want to show or display a certain, you know, part of me to somebody. Um, so it becomes this kind of identity marker, but that's, but that's not what discipleship is. It is a whole life of knowing and becoming like the master, of becoming like Jesus. So I think as we, as we keep walking through the text, that's, that's in my mind what we have as a difference between the people who just came as like a large crowd and the disciples. When we come to verse 8, we read uh, that they came from all over, all over the empire and the news about his miracles had spread far and wide and vast numbers of people came to see him. Now, I've told you what the difference is between a follower, uh, you know, somebody who just kind of comes to, to get something from Jesus or, or maybe, you know, to try and, you know, versus somebody who's a disciple, a follower uh, of Jesus. But here's something that's the same. I think verse 8, whether you're a disciple or whether you're somebody just, you know, kind of who wants to hear or maybe to get something from God, is that they came to him. Like, that was something that just kind of, kind of hit me as I was thinking about it. I'm like, actually, that's, that's how it starts for all of us, right? Now, I think that God, you know, the Holy Spirit is working in us before we ever come. But at the end of the day, we have to come to him. And, and whether, you're, whether you are, like, committed as a disciple or whether you're somebody who's just kind of trying to figure it out, right? We all come to him. And so for the people, the difference then is for the people flooding to Jesus, they're not so much concerned with, with the kingdom of God, right? Because Jesus says that he came to, right? We, we read this before, and it's in chapter 1, verse uh, 15, that says that Jesus came announcing, the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Later, Jesus says um, in chapter 1, verse 30, 38, sorry, Jesus replied, we must go to other towns as well, and I will preach to them too. That is why I came, right? Jesus came proclaiming not just that he was here to make sick people better, not just that he was here to, you know, to, to make people a little bit happier before they die or something like that. Jesus came saying, actually, I've come to bring a new kingdom, right? The kingdoms of this world, they don't work. They'll never work because they aren't the way the world was created to be. And maybe you feel that. Maybe you sense that, that there's something wrong with the world, that it's not right, that there's something about that, you know, again, I mean, we can look at our world. I mean, literally, like, it's like every day there's something else happening in the news, whether it's a school shooting or a war or, you know, even there, like, politicians with their hands in the coffer. Like, you know, you name it, there's constantly stuff that reminds us that the world is not right, that the people in power are, you know, often exercise that power in an unhealthy way, that it is not the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus came announcing a kingdom that says, actually, I've come to invite you in a kingdom, into a way of life where things are becoming the way they were always meant to be. 
That's what Jesus is inviting us into. It's so much bigger than just a temporary right here, right now, quick fix. And that, I think, is the problem. These crowds, they come to Jesus. They don't really care that much about the kingdom. It doesn't seem like what they care about is the right now, the immediate, fix me. <laughs> and to one degree or another, again, I think we can sympathize with them. I don't, I don't want to like demonize these people. Like I think to, a, to an extent, we can, we can sympathize with them. Right? They're experiencing real trauma. They're experiencing real life difficulty. But the problem is, is that their, their solution is short-sighted. Just fix my problem and then everything will be fine. Right? Just fix this problem and everything will be fine. And, and I think for them, they're having a hard time seeing the bigger picture. The grand vision on offer that Jesus has come preaching about. And I think to a, to a degree, that's actually why Jesus gets in the boat, too. Sure, I mean, it says in the text that he healed some people, right? It doesn't say that he just said, leave me alone, get off my back, right? It says that he, uh, he healed, where does it say? Jesus instructed his disciples to have a boat ready so the crowd would not crush him. He healed many people that day. So he did heal people, but that's not why he came, right? So Jesus gets in the boat so that he can share the good news of the kingdom with people. So he can share the good news that a new way is breaking into the world, the way things were always meant to be, the way we see pictured in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, where everything is right, where there is no, no sadness and crying and evil. There is no like, you know, like murder. There's no death. There's no... Like, this world, like Jesus came to bring a kingdom where there's perfect justice, where there's perfect peace. And so, it was hard for them to see this bigger picture. And again, I think it's hard, it's hard to be, you know, I don't, sorry, I don't want to be too hard on them. Because here's the reality. Like you and me, they lived in a world that was messed up. They lived in a world where they were, I mean, literally, some of these people were oppressed by evil spirits. You know, like, I mean, quite literally, I mean, like, there is demonic stuff happening here. And I think that's a real reality in our world is there is real demonic things that happen and oppression. And, and it's not just at an individual level, it's at a bigger level. And when sin is corrupting the world, when, when rebellion against God is the normal, and that, that's been that way for like ever, you know, since Genesis chapter 3, where, where sin and rebellion against God has been the normal, it is hard sometimes to catch a vision for something so much bigger because there is actually a, a literal oppression happening on us. So when you're deeply oppressed by spiritual evil and the physical effects of sin, it blinds us like, to the reality of the kingdom. And so they, they really did need to be free of the bondage that Jesus is setting them free from. They needed to be saved from the pains of the kingdom of darkness. But what they don't see, they just see again in the immediate, what they don't see is their need for a new kingdom. Again, it's not just a need for a new, like, you know, a healing. It's a need for a new life in a new kingdom under a new king. One true king. And that, that is what Jesus came to offer. And the thing is, is we could, again, we can look at them, but I, I don't think that we're all that different. <laughs> if I'm being honest, we know the difficulties of life. 
And even for some of us, even more than others, we can feel the pain of a broken world. We've experienced the pain of a world that is not right, that something wrong has happened to to me or to you. And so we come to Jesus often asking for the benefits of the kingdom, right? We want the benefits of the kingdom. So things like healing or maybe justice or generosity, or we want the benefits of the kingdom like mercy. But the problem is either we don't know there is a new kingdom or we don't actually want it. We don't actually want it. We want the benefits of the kingdom, but not the king. And that is a, is a major malfunction, right? That is a major problem. And it's something that I think our culture, like the Western world you know, for a very long time has been trying to reconcile. This desire for the kingdom, for the things that God you know, made and called good, right? Like this, these ideas of justice, of mercy, all of those things. We desire and we long for those things, and rightly so, but the problem is, is the answer that we get from our world is, is, is unhelpful, I think. It's unsatisfactory. It's distorted. It's a distorted view of justice. It's a distorted view even sometimes of mercy. It's a distorted view of generosity. We want the benefits of the kingdom, but not the king. And, I, and again, I, say, I think this is one of the major flaws of post-Christendom is what it's called, right? So let me explain what post-Christendom is because that's a big word that probably is meaningless to most of us, right? <laughs> so post-Christendom is basically, so right, we think there must have been a pre-Christendom, right? <laughs> so so let's, like, let's go back. Pre-Christendom, right? That means a world before the culture was culturally Christian, right? So you think about like uh, Ireland before St. Patrick came. Or you think about, um, you know, I mean, all over Europe, really, before, before Christians moved in, shared Jesus, right? And, and what happened is over time, right, the, the culture was transformed and shaped by the Christian faith. And so real ideas of what it means to be just. Now, I'm not saying the church was always good at these things, but at least they actually said, you know, like they had a real strong grounding for what is just, for what is good, for what is right, and, and, and like... Right? So there was this idea. So that pre-Christian, pre-Christendom, then turned into Christendom. Right? And that's where, where Europe lived for you know, a very long time in these places that were, they would become culturally Christian. Right? And so even there, the laws of the land reflect the Christian faith. The, you know, the way that people you know, were, were kind to their neighbor or things like that. All of those things were not givens. They were not normal things prior to Christianity becoming the de facto religion of Europe, right? And so we enter this phase of Christendom. Ireland was in it longer than most of Europe, right? You know, we're only, what, 30 years, something like that, um, kind of on the other side of what I would say is Christendom. But it's happened very rapidly in that Ireland is now in the same place as most of Europe, and that is in a post-Christendom or post-Christian world. And what that means is there's still all the leftovers from Christianity, but we've, we've jettisoned the king. 
So we want, we still desire justice. We still think those are good things. We still have in some ways almost a nearly biblical view of justice, but distorted because we no longer have the king who defines what justice is. And so we live in this world where nobody really knows what is actually just, what is actually good, what is actually right. I don't know because there's no real grounding for it because we've gotten rid of the king. And so I think this whole idea of trying to have the kingdom without the king, it's a failed experiment and it's left us hollow, it's left us drowning, not knowing actually really, you know, it's, it's, it's created a world where people are more anxious than they've ever been before. I mean, that's just the, what the statistics would say. So again, I don't think we're all that different. We come sometimes to, to then we bring that idea into the church in that I can have Jesus in the parts of my life where I like his morals or I like it's good, but I can jettison, you know, the Christianity in other places because I don't like it, you know, and I, it's customizable. It's, you know, it's a, it's a pick and mix or like there's this thing, uh, you know, yeah, maybe pick and mix is a good one. You know, like I can put some, I can put some, you know, bears and some, you know, uh, strawberries and whatever, you know, into my, you know, and, and if I don't, you know, I don't really like black jelly beans, so I'll leave those out. And I'll, you know, like, right, we kind of look at the faith like that. We go, well, I'll take this, I'll take this, I'll take this, but I don't want that, right? And that is, again, trying to have the kingdom without the king. But what Christianity says, and what Jesus, I think, is, you know, as he proclaims the kingdom, is that there is a way that leads to life. And it's not by picking and choosing, but it's by trusting that God is your creator, that he knows what's best for you, and that he is calling you in to something better. And this is what Jesus was proclaiming to them, but they couldn't see it, I don't think. And so we read then, they came to him. And that was true of the disciples too. And so I think the question then that this story prompts is this. What do you want? Right? We talked about this in the first week, that one of the major questions that the Gospels ask, whether, that, whether you're reading Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and actually specifically in John, we find Jesus asking this question several times, what do you want? But I think the question underneath a lot of what Jesus says really is this underlying question, what do you want? Do you just want the temporary, momentary fix, or do you want something bigger? Do you long for something bigger? Do you long for peace? Do you long to be like connected into something so much bigger than yourself, connected to the creator of the universe? This is what Jesus came proclaiming. This is what Jesus says he came to bring. And so why are you here? I think becomes an important question. Are you here just to get something from Jesus? Or are you here to find Jesus? Like, and I think, that's, I think there's a big difference. Again, you know, I said at the beginning, there's a difference between being a disciple of Jesus and just being a follower or like just being part of the crowd that comes to see Jesus. And again, I'm just going to say, if you're, if you're in that place where you're just like, hey, I just want to see Jesus, like, that's fine. That's like, I'm glad that you're at least here and, and you're listening, okay? And so, so, so hear, my, hear my heart on that. My heart is this. I don't want you to stay there because I have, I, have, I have been able to taste and see in my life as I give my life to Jesus that the, that the Lord is good. <laughs> and it is so much better than what the world tells us is good. It is so much better. It is so much fuller, so much richer. The more I give my life to Jesus, the more I experience the life to the full that he says he came to bring. And so that's why I say I don't want you to stay there because I want you to experience the same thing I do. 
The same thing many of us do. And so what do you want? What are you looking for? Why are you here? These are important questions. Because if you just come for the miracles, like these guys, they just came for the miracles, that's all they'll get. That's all they'll get. But for the disciples that came for Jesus, they got life and life abundantly. And so my encouragement to you would be this. Don't settle. Don't, don't settle. Long for more. Push for more. Pray for more. You know, like, and, and I think Jesus will meet us there. As we move on, we'll, we'll skip down to verse 13. Afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain. And, and again, I, if you want more discussion on stuff like, you know, Jesus casting out evil spirits and things, I would encourage, there's a couple of weeks ago we talked more about that, which is why I'm just kind of, for everyone's sake, <laughs> moving on, because I talk a lot. We know this, all right? So, so just to say, like, if, if you're more interested in that, like a couple of weeks ago, right, we, we've talked about that several, several we've, this has come up a couple of times, right? Um, where, where Jesus has uh, cast, out, cast out demons. So, verse 13. Afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him. And they came to him. Then he appointed 12 of them and called them his apostles. They were to accompany him, and he would send them out to preach, giving them authority to cast out demons. We'll stop there. Maybe we read over that and we just hear, oh, why, why are we getting a geography lesson that Jesus went up on a mountain? And okay, we called 12 people, right? I've, I've heard that before. You know, I've, been in, I've been in church before. We, I've heard that there were 12 disciples. Whenever I got in a religion class or something, all right, there's some things that are really significant going on here. And this is like one of the fun of the Bible because it's a different culture, right? We're, we're entering into a different culture, a different time period, a different world. Sometimes it's, it's important just to break these down. All right, so we're going to transition into, into like, you know, lecture mode for just one second here, okay? So in the Bible, when you read about going up on a mountain, right, there are some very significant times where people go up on a mountain, right? So one of the most significant and one of the most formative for the people of Israel was the moment where Moses climbed up on a mountain and he received the law from God, right? And when he received the law from God, he came down to the 12 tribes of Israel and, they were, and, and he read out the law to them, and he asked them, do you, or do you agree to this? Do you want to be part of the covenant people? And they said, yes, we do. And at that point, the nation of Israel was formed. They became God's covenant people, his own possession for his own choosing, you know, that he has chosen them to be his people. And so what I think is happening and, and again, if you ever really want to, you can trace that whole up on a mountain thing, right? Jesus goes up on the mountain and delivers the Sermon on the Mount. That's a fun, but, but we find Jesus going up onto a mountain. And when he goes up onto that mountain, he calls 12 people. Now, if we put those two stories together, can we see how it may be a kind of a significant moment, right? What Jesus is doing is intentional. He's not just like, you know, he just randomly walked up a mountain for no reason and just thought, ah, oh, 12 is a good number, right? No, there's like, there's something going on here, right? We have this picture, okay? Because if you think about the history of Israel, if you know it, maybe you don't, that's fine. But the history of Israel looks like this. Just, this is the most brief history of Israel ever. So understand that we're skipping a whole lot of stuff. Um, 
But when we read the Bible, the history of Israel looks like this. Moses goes up on the mountain, gets the law, comes down, bring, makes covenant people, right? Twelve tribes, they all become a people, they enter the promised land, and then they do a really, really, really bad job of following, of following God. And God says, look, over and over, he sends the prophets. And over and over, they say, you guys are doing a really bad job of following God. <laughs> you, need to, you need to do better. You need to like live up to your side of the covenant. You need to worship God and worship him alone. Stop worshiping all these other things. Like, and the people kind of go, yeah, 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 no thanks. And so eventually God says, okay, I need to discipline you. <laughs> and I'm going to. I'm going to send you into exile. And so by the time that Jesus is... is is, so the people are sent into exile, and then they come back from exile, okay? Some of them, but not all of them. And by the time of Jesus, basically what you have is there are two tribes left. And that's it. And there's like a smattering of people from here and there that can trace their lineage to maybe another tribe or whatever, but, but that's pretty much it. Israel, as they knew it in the Old Testament, was no longer really Israel. And so what Jesus is saying here, and something that the prophets predicted. So when you read the Old Testament, you find the prophets saying, God's going to discipline you, but there will come a day when Israel will be restored. Jesus goes up on a mountain and he calls 12 disciples. What is he saying? I've come to bring the kingdom back. The kingdom of God is here. I am restoring this kingdom. What was broken, I am fixing. And I am calling you to be a part of this kingdom. So Jesus goes up on the mountain and calls the twelve. He is reconstituting, restoring Israel, restoring the kingdom of God. Only this kingdom is going to look different. And this obviously becomes a sticking point. One of the things that gets Jesus killed, right? This kingdom is going to look different from what the people expected. And so Jesus calls the 12 apostles. Now, how many of you guys have a great working definition of a of apostle? <laughs> Probably not most of us, right? I'm just going to guess. Like that's not something normally that we you know we don't throw around like apostles, you know, like <laughs> like that's not something like, you know, hey. So so Jesus calls these guys. So these 12 guys, there's disciples, right? So there's lots of disciples. Okay, there was at least 70 of them, probably 100 of them. You know, there's like, there's a good number of disciples. There's a lot of people that are like, hey, I'm following Jesus, I'm in. Okay, and from that group, Jesus says, I'm going to take 12 of you. And he selects these 12 to be his apostles. So an apostle, that word literally means, uh, means to be sent out with a commission. In other words, it's given a very specific job. Like, you guys have a special job, all right? And so as we read, you know, sometimes we need to kind of take that into, into account as we read the Gospels. Like the 12 disciples, like the 12 apostles, they are, and then later Paul become, uh, also calls himself an apostle, but they are, they, they have a specific job, right? So um, they were given a, a special task to establish Christ's church, right? They're kind of the group of guys that, you know, they're the guys that kind of start things off. You know, the Holy Spirit obviously working through them. You know, you go to the book of Acts and Peter preaches this sermon and 3,000 people come and say, yeah, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. I'm a disciple. I'm in, right? So they're given a bit of a special, unique job that the rest of us aren't. But, but, and I think this is important. They may have been specially commissioned by Jesus 
to work in his name, but they were still disciples at the end of the day. And you and I are also called to be disciples. That is, that's what we're called to. In some ways, their calling is different than ours. But in many ways, their calling is still the same. It's still our calling. So the, the Christian, you and I, are to be apprentices or disciples of the master, of Jesus. You're not to be a disciple of me. You're not to be a disciple of Luke. You're not to be a disciple of, you know, like, you're to be a disciple of Jesus, to follow Jesus, right? And so, to be a Christian, then, is to be a disciple. And I think another good way, and it's a way that we've been doing it in church for a while now, to summarize kind of the steps of being a disciple is, is this. So we are called to be disciples, but we are, so, and that means that we are called to be with Jesus, right? So the disciples, they spent time with Jesus, right? Not, like, not necessarily just like the crowds coming looking for something, but they sat at his feet. They listened to him. They got to know him. They, they heard his teaching. They, they followed him everywhere. They wanted to be with Jesus. And the purpose then of being with Jesus, and, and we see this kind of with the, with the apostles, right? It says um, there that they were, uh, Mark says they were to accompany him, so they were to be with him, that he would send them out to preach, so to be like him, and he would give them authority to cast out demons to do what he did. Now, again, they have a bit of a unique job, but I think underlying, really, as the disciples, we have the same job, to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. That, to me, is the easiest way, I think, to break down how to be a disciple. <laughs> Those three things. Be, you know, like Obviously, start by giving your life to Jesus, by saying, I want to be a part of his kingdom, and then spend the rest of your life being with Jesus, being like Jesus, and doing the things he did. Right? And, and so, um, so this is what we see the apostles doing, but this is also what we see the disciples doing. This is what, when we get to the book of Acts, we see Stephen doing. This is when we get to you know, the book of Acts, we see Philip doing. We see the disciples of Jesus doing these things. So I, I mentioned earlier that our world, I think, wants to make Christian discipleship or being a Christian an accessory that we choose to enhance our individual life. And the issue is that I think, too, they want to make it a private accessory that we leave at home or, you know, you carry in your purse and you only bring it out when no one's looking, um, you know, or, or whatever. It's an accessory you keep at home or tucked away. But this is not how discipleship works. Okay, and so because we're not going to get to this passage this year, this summer, I'm going to skip ahead to Mark chapter 8. And I just want to read this for us because I think this is a good picture of what Jesus is calling us to. In Mark 8, 34 to 37... Jesus says, sorry, then calling the crowd to join his disciples, and this is Jesus, Jesus said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. Now, doesn't that go against so much of what, you know, even our, our intuition tells us? By giving up myself, I lose myself. I'm, I'm not going to be me. I'm not going to be. But I think what Jesus is getting at, he goes on to say, but if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Here's what I think Jesus is, is, is getting at here. It's counterintuitive for us to say, well, I give up my life. You know, I should give up my life. No. 
It's mine. I need to keep it. And I need to search for my happiness and whatever makes me happy. And I need to go after what I feel is right. But what Jesus is saying is, come to me, give up your life, and as you give up your life to following me, you find it. You find it. You don't actually become less of yourself. You become more of who you were created to be as we give ourselves to Jesus. That is the gospel. I'm not becoming, when I give myself to Christ, I'm not becoming less of myself. I'm actually becoming more of who I was created to be. And so Jesus invited these people from all different lives and backgrounds, these men, to be his disciples. And we could go through the list, and some of them we know. Some of them were fishermen. Some of them were tax collectors, and they hated each other, fishermen and tax collectors, because who taxed the fish? The tax collectors, right? And, and they were you know, scoundrels who stole money from fishermen, right? And so fishermen and tax collectors didn't like each other. Guess who else there is? Simon the Zealot. What does that mean? He killed people who were tax collectors. And now they're like together in a group. It's this wonderful picture of how the gospel brings people together. The good news of the kingdom of God takes people that otherwise would have hated each other, been in opposition to each other, shared nothing in common, and now he's brought them together. And you know what? When we read about the disciples, it's messy all the time. And that's one of the things I, I, I actually I love about the gospels is we don't get this sort of glossed over picture of the disciples. We get a real life picture that it's actually hard. It's hard to get along with people that you've hated your whole life. It's hard to get along with people who are different than you. It's hard to give up your life and find it in Jesus. It's hard. And yet we see this picture of the disciples trying to work that out. And so I think even there, this should be an encouragement to us. You and I come to Jesus flaws and all. And I don't know about you, but I've got a lot of flaws. You know, there's plenty of people you know, in this church at this point who could attest to that, right? I've got a lot of flaws. But Jesus, Jesus calls us flaws and all. Maybe we just came looking for a healing or maybe some bit of peace. And Jesus meets us, there we go, Jesus meets us where we are. But he's not content to leave us there. He's not content to leave us there. He wants to make us like him. He wants us to experience the true life to the full, which is a life with him. I believe, and I think Jesus did too, that what you want, what you desire, what you long for is actually found in him. It's not going to be found other places. He is peace. He is love. He is your maker, and you were made for him, to be with him, to be like him, and to do what he did. Jesus came to show us the way and to invite us into the kingdom, and he came by being the way. He showed us the way by being the way. We come to God and are accepted into his kingdom only because of Jesus. If someone wrote our life down, I think we would look a lot like the disciples. <laughs> We'd probably look like a pretty mixed bag. If I'm being honest, I know I would look like a buffoon. I'm not going to you know, speak for you, right? But I can look back in my life. And I, I look back in my past and I go, I'm an idiot. 
You know, like, I mean, it's the constant, like, echo of my life. You know, and, but one of the things that I love is a lot of the mistakes I made then, I, I'm not making now. I'm making new ones, you know? Like, but, but, like, you know, it is one of those, like, Jesus is changing me. And I'm thankful for that because I don't want to be who I was 10 years ago. I don't want to be who I was 15 years ago. Right? Jesus has taken me where I was. He's met me where I was, but he wasn't content to leave me there. But the beauty of the gospel is that God loves us and God loved me and he loves you. He loved me even when I was a buffoon and I'm still, okay, I still am, but like hopefully less of one. You know, like he loves us anyway and he isn't finished with us. You and I are invited to be his disciple and we come not based on how good we've been. We come based on what Jesus has done for us. Right? Because we skip to the end, right? When we get to the very last verse of our passage, it says Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. Talk about ruining the story, but you know, like, but we come to the, you know, like we think about that. Somebody that Jesus, Jesus met, that Jesus called, betrayed him. But Jesus died for you and me so that, so that we could be a part of his kingdom. Right? He died for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of new life. New life. So that our sins are forgiven and we receive new life in Christ. And there is no better news in this world that Jesus died in my place, that Jesus died for my sin, for the ways that in so many ways, you know, I've never killed anybody. I've never done, you know, like you think about the worst crimes. or I haven't committed them. But you know what? I've chosen to use people before. I've treated people like rubbish. I've used them. I, I, I've lied to people. There's a whole lot in my life where I've just treated, mistreated people. And not in the way, you know, that would put me in jail or something like that. But I would imagine your story is similar. You know, I don't think I'm alone in standing up here. If I was, I probably wouldn't be standing up here admitting it. But, you know, like, uh, I'm kidding. But, um, but yeah. And yet, Jesus forgives that. When I've looked at people as less than human, and that's really what it is, when I feel like I can lie to somebody or cheat, cheat them, I'm looking at them as less than human. I'm using them. I've looked at people who God loves as less than human, treated them badly, and yet the reality is that Jesus has forgiven me for that. And Jesus forgive you for that. He wants to forgive you for that. He died in our place and for our sin. And he died victorious over evil and over sin. And the good news of the gospel is that he's coming back. And that world that we long for, we get to taste it now. We get to experience it now, but it's coming in its fullness where there will be no more sin. There will be no more death. There will be no more tears. There will be no more injustice. There will be no more evil. But all will be made right under Jesus, the King. And so we give ourselves to him. And this morning we celebrate that with communion. It's something we do every week. And, it, and honestly, it's one of the most...